When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Double X Gap Fest and a special insider survey for this podcast are brought to you by the new 2011 Hyundai Equus. Discover the Hyundai Equus, the new premium luxury sedan from Hyundai offering first-class refinements and features, including an iPad equipped with the Equus Owner's Manual app. And take the insider survey for the Double X Gab Fest at podcastinsidersurvey.com. That's podcastinsidersurvey.com. Hello and welcome to our Double X Audio Book Club. Today we are going to discuss the new translation of Madame Bovary by Lydia Davis, originally written in 1857 by Gustave Flaubert. We will say Happy New Year to you all, or Bonne Année, as <laughs> Gustave Flaubert would say. I'm here. This is Hannah Rosen. I am the editor of Double X, and I'm joined here today in the Washington studio with Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. And we have joining us in New Haven, Emily Bazelon, the other editor of Double X. Hi. Bonjour. We have to make French jokes throughout this podcast. So Madame Bovary, all of you might remember this from college. If you don't remember it, you should reread it. It's really an amazing experience to reread it. I had utterly forgotten how depressing (laughs) depressing the book is. Um, She's described in the jacket copy as the original desperate housewife. And while that's a rather crass description, I think it's kind of perfect. Yes, it's actually actually not inaccurate, both in the way that Flaubert kind of coldly anthropologizes her. He sort of coldly describes her and in the way we are all welcomed to join in her misery. The translation has stirred a little literary kerfuffle about whether or not we are too hard on Madame Bovary. And so we will talk a little bit about that. But I will start before she even becomes Madame Bovary, because one thing I had completely forgotten is that the novel opens with a description of Charles, her husband, and his childhood. The the first chapter is devoted to him and is quite cruel to him. I mean, describes him as puny and feeble and rather unhappy. Slow. Slow. And yet Charles ultimately turns out to be quite sympathetic. So what did you guys think of Charles and his, you know, his portrayal early on? What, what, how well, was he presented this, to us and why? There's this, this description of him where Flaubert says, his mother kept him always trailing after her. She would cut out cardboard figures for him, tell him stories, converse with him in endless monologues full of melancholy whimsy and beguiling chatter. And, uh, you know, here we go. He's a mama's boy set up to be led around by the nose by his future wife. Right. And his mother, who never leaves him alone. Right. 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 I mean, and who doesn't like his wife. Big surprise. Right. right. I suppose in some ways he is arguably the most sympathetic character in the book in that he genuinely loves his wife, who genuinely has no regard and, in fact, contempt for him. But he is not an intelligent person. He is not a particularly competent doctor, as it turns out, which is what he does for a living. As Lydia Davis says in this introduction, Flaubert actually set out to write a book about sort of mediocre, provincial, petty bourgeois 
people living in a fairly dreary small town. And he does that. And each character in this book, from the, you know, main characters to Madame Bovary's lovers, to the priests, to the really kind of hideous character of the sort of self-important local pharmacist. Whom Flaubert quite liked, apparently. It was a character that he had He was very proud of, probably. You know, sort of to a man and woman limited in their intelligence, in their morality, in their uh, scope. And so he succeeded, you know, I mean, he's... Although to be fair to Flaubert, and this is the question we will have throughout this podcast, he does say, you know, the bourgeoisie such as myself. I mean, he does not exclude yes. himself. Mm-hmm. This is no, Madame Bovary. C'est moi. Exactly. So it's not, it's a cold kind of sympathy. I mean, it's very scrutinizing. It's very exacting in the details, but it's not right. wholly without sympathy, or at least it's an empathy, maybe. It's not, a, it's not a love or affection. She's purposely not a likable character. There's rarely a scene where you can connect with her, but, but it is a sympathy nonetheless. So let's start earlier on. The first vision we get of Madame Bovary, her childhood. Her childhood happens in a convent, and there we get the first hints of Madame Bovary as a kind of dreamer. Do either of you remember how she's portrayed in that in those scenes in the convent? She's reading a lot of really bad literature, <laughs> clearly <laughs> right. rattling her brain. Right. Which is clearly what, you know, part of what dooms her because it creates in her these unquenchable desires for a different kind of life that is more romantic in a very cliched way. And that sets up the tragedy in which she experiences her most passionate romantic moments entirely through cliches, which is really the tragedy that she reenacts over and over again. Angels, gold, kind of cliched poetry. And I think that's a lot of what Flaubert, you know, that's his most cruel criticism of the bourgeoisie is how they have these extremely conventional aspirations, which they mistake for their deepest emotions. And in fact, there's this wonderful passage, maybe the most beautiful passage in the book, I think, where um, one of her lovers, whose name is uh, Rodolfo, who is really kind of a, a rake who, you know, has no particular particular regard for any of the women he sleeps with. He's a user and a player and uh, a local landowner. And at one point, you know, uh, Flaubert is sort of implying that Emma Bovary actually does have these feelings that she can't quite access and she can't quite express in any language other than cliches. And because he has heard these so many times before from other mistresses, he could not perceive, and now I'm reading, this man of such broad experience, the difference in feeling that might underlie similarities of expression. Because licentious or venal lips had murmured the same words to him, he had little faith in their truthfulness. One had to discount, he thought, exaggerated speeches that concealed mediocre affections, as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest of metaphors, since none of us can ever express the exact measure of our needs, or our ideas, or our sorrows, and human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we beat our tunes for bears to dance to when we long to move the stars to pity. Now, that's one of the more famous passages in the novel, and I I think one of the more sympathetic. I mean, that yes. is a one rare moment where Flaubert actually steps out and does talk about this human, universal human universal, emotion. Yes, um, and connect Madame Bovary to that. Right, in other words, right. he puts Rodolfo in that. We start in Rodolfo's mind, and then we move on to sort of the tragedy of human inability to express the breadth and depth of emotion that we want to. And one imagines, as a writer, Flaubert too is feeling this very strongly. The the kind of frustration of not being able to say 
exactly what you want to say. Right. And that's the point where Madame Bovary Semoi becomes believable because you feel that she is no longer just limited by her lack of character and her social status and the circumstances. She she is limited by a universal human limitation and thus is sort of more pitiable than she is in most of the novel. Can I interject um, a small yes. translation note here that comes yes. via Ruth Franklin from the New Republic? She points out that the original in the French doesn't use the we that Margaret read, which really resonates. And instead, it uses the third person of her son. And so Davis made, you know, took a small liberty here in in changing it into to the first person plural in English. And I think although really to have a pedantic reading. moment here, I noticed that mm-hmm. actually at least <laughs> one of the earlier translations does that, too, because I did just compare this passage uses we, which is a, a significant shift there. But I, it's I'm not, not sure Lydia Davis, Davis was the shift. first person to do it. But before and we're now, to, before, should we say who Lydia Davis is, by the way? She's a translator. She actually had a wonderful story in Vogue this uh, month in which she talked about living in France and what turned her on to doing translations. She also but she's also an awesome Swan's Way. In her own right. Right. She's mainly known as a short story writer, and she's a short story writer. Before we get too sympathetic, Ruth Franklin in this New Republic review complains that people were incredibly unfair to Madame Bovary, that she was. Not people, Catherine Harrison. Catherine Harrison in the New York York Times review, but generally the title was Why is Emma Bovary so maligned and misunderstood? Now, we can all take issue with that because Emma Bovary is quite loathsome. I mean, in many ways, she's constantly striving for things that she can't have in ways both emotionally resonant and also completely commercially crass. And so I'll give you two examples of that. One is is on the eve of her marriage. Charles is treating her father. Uh, Charles has been previously married, then widowed, and then continues to treat her father. And there he meets Madame Bovary. And it's not that they have, you know, great conversations, but they exchange moments and glances. And she decides that this is going to be her escape from her father's house. Before her marriage, she had believed that what she was experiencing was love. But since the happiness that should have resulted from that love had not come, she thought she must have been mistaken. And Emma tried to find out just what was meant in life by the words, and these are all in quotes, bliss, passion, and intoxication, which had seemed to so beautiful to her in books. Now, of course, this passage, this instant of dissatisfaction with her marriage is what will set her on a course of complete and total destruction. And as I said, sometimes she seeks these in her two lovers, who we'll talk about in a minute, and sometimes she seeks it in stuff, you know, constant stuff. And those two desires are totally intertwined, which is something I'm really, really interested in. Like she was talking about when her child was born. She's a quite horrific mother that because she couldn't have a boat-shaped cradle and pink silk curtains, she didn't care. But she, it was all just right. dumb, annoying right. to her, the whole process of childbirth. And forget it. Right. No, in many ways, this is like not to malign, you know, Michelle Salahi yet again, but it sort of is though somebody <laughs> has written a novel about, you know, the internal life of Michelle Salahi or some other, you know, kind of real housewife. And, you know, one thing that's interesting, just as an aside, is Flaubert is a beautiful and incredibly precise and, you know, sort of microscopically observant um, describer of, as you say, Hannah, um, things, you know, clothing. Cigar boxes, right, curtains. Right. You know, you realize partly it's his commitment to this incredibly close observation and description. And partly, you know, when people today read somebody like Jonathan Franzen and sometimes criticize him for having all these kind of brand names and social signifiers and, you know, having people speak in kind of the banal particular ways that they speak at this moment in time, 
you know, Flaubert was very much like that. And actually, some of these descriptions of the kind of, you know, objects she buys and things would have, in fact, meant something to people at the time, more particular. They would have sort of, you know, located these people in the social structure in a way that, you know, a brand name or a store name or something locates people for us now as readers. So we don't necessarily grok all that. You know, you certainly, this is such a visual novel and sensual in its description of, of objects. And so in that sense, it kind of, you know, helps you recreate her desire as well as, you know, her desirability as it describes her in the eyes of the men who admire her. Right. And we will talk more about the objects and particularly the beautiful scene in the carriage when she has one of her affairs. But first, while we're talking about commercial objects, let us pause for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Double X Gab Fest and a special insider survey for this podcast are brought to you by the new 2011 Hyundai Equus. And after three weeks of voting, here are the results of our Double X survey question. We asked which of the women listed would you least like to be stuck with on a desert island? Here are your answers in reverse order. Number seven, Bristol Palin. Number six, Nancy Pelosi. Number five, Kim Kardashian. Number four, Hillary Clinton. Number three, Paris Hilton. Number two, Snooki. Number one, Sarah Palin. Which means even though Bristol didn't win Dancing with the Stars, at least she can brag about this to her mom. We'll be announcing the results of the most listened to Slate podcast on Friday's Political Gabfest. You can still vote for the Double X Gabfest at podcastinsidersurvey.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the new 2011 Hyundai Equus, featuring an iPad equipped with an owner's manual app and first class everything, including heated and cooled seats complete with driver's back massage. Discover a new kind of luxury and the special survey for this podcast, all brought to you by the new 2011 Hyundai Equus at podcastinsidersurvey.com. That's podcastinsidersurvey.com. And now back to the show. So here's something that I noticed upon rereading the novel, speaking of commercialism, that in the moments when she falls in love, there's a moment when she and Leon, she's watching Leon hold her daughter. And Leon is her second lover. Leon is her second lover. But this is at the moment before he becomes her second lover. She sort of falls in love with him and then he disappears from the novel. He's supposed to be her soulmate. It just doesn't quite work out. It doesn't work out that way. They haven't really exchanged words yet. They will later in the novel. But she's she's noting that he's in love with her. She talks about love coming with great thunderclaps. I mean, she's deep in this kind of cliche passionate moment that she's so vulnerable to. Meanwhile, Charles has a knife, and that's to her very peasant-like, and the knife will reappear later in the novel in somebody else's hands. But at that instant when she recognizes, she says something very funny. It's like, wait, he's in love. Who's he in love with? Why? It's me. You know, <laughs> she has this funny moment of recognizing. That is the instant in which Lheureux, who's the merchant character, appears in the novel. And I was thinking sinister. about this. The sinister. Even though his name is Happiness right, in French. Right, exactly. Anti-Semitic, but otherwise should be Jewish character in the novel. <laughs> to whom she ends up massively in debt and and having her house repossessed, essentially. Now, at first, I thought this was funny because I was thinking, you know, these days we always talk about interior decoration as a substitute for sex. You know, that's it's like when your marriage right. goes dead, you start decorating your house. But in fact, for Madame Bovary, the aspirations are one and the same. As soon as she sort of links herself up with a kind of successful romantic story is the moment when she, when Lheureux enters and she calls to him and orders up the yellow curtains and the beautiful clothing mm-hmm. and sort of gets herself into terrible debt. And I wondered what that was about. I mean, it must 
must be Flaubert's commentary on 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 sort of class aspiration, and that all these things are. This is the way in which uh, Madame Bovary is a victim of her circumstances in this play in this world that she's placed in, where there's no room for individual aspiration. That all your aspirations are cliched, and especially and and he does overtly say this at times for a woman for whom divorce is going to be a scandal, a, pr- a profession is is not an option, and there are limited modes of self-expression. Right. But the fact that it translates to basically every character in the book, his contempt for the bourgeoisie makes you feel like this incredibly crabbed existence, right? I mean, there's a, this amazing scene where they're having basically like a big presentation of rural culture and racing and It's an food, agricultural you know, fair. And, and <coughs> everything is through this prism of mockery and of feeling like it's all just pomp and circumstance and adds up to nothingness, right? And there's a sense in which there is no real way to accomplish anything in this novel. I think particularly because Charles is a doctor, which we think of as his noble profession. But at the time he was a doctor in the 19th century, that basically meant just like making people die faster. And <laughs> right. in fact, his efforts and more painfully. To, yeah. And his efforts to, you know, help someone who has like a club. Oh, well, yeah. Well, let's that's, talk about, let's that, talk about that, that separately because that's a very interesting incident. But before we move on, I feel like I need to put a little bit of literary context. Why was this novel so controversial? Just so we explain, you know, where is this sort of cold eyed description on Flaubert's part coming. I think it is because, so say scholars of the 19th century, the fact that he did not moralize. In other words, he was not right. setting out to hold one person as the heroine or moral exemplar. Well, he was and fairly to condemn con- her. Yes, he was fairly contemptuous towards his heroine. He's fairly contemptuous of religious figures. And so so that's, that's the idea of why Flaubert was initially put on trial for writing this novel. And so that gives it a little bit of context of this idea that he had contempt for And he was not convicted of anything. He was right. not convicted of anything. And it was a day-long trial. And it was a day-long trial. But let's but go back, actually, because I feel like we left this hanging, the Catherine Harrison point. So Catherine Harrison wrote a, who's a novelist, wrote a review in the New York Times in which she made what seems to me quite a legitimate point, although Ruth Franklin and the New Republic took issue uh, with it, but which is basically that, you know, Madame Bovary, and this is not you know, this is not a judgment on the book. This is not one of these, well, I didn't like the character, so, right. you know, I didn't like the book kind of comments. But she is a fundamentally unsympathetic character. Now, in the end, when she dies an incredibly <laughs> painful death by self-poisoning, and, you know, the moments throughout when you think of her as just this person who is a problem to herself and to everyone around her, you feel human sympathy for her. But as a character, she is, to compare her to, for example, Anna Karenina, the other great sort of adulteress of 19th century literature, she is a much less sort of fully rounded and you know person with with a range of feeling. I mean, Anna Karenina, for one thing, feels greatly torn between her uh, love for her lover and uh, her love for her child. And also, that's a book that portrays other kinds of marriages, which are in fact happier than than the central one, which this book does not. I, Wait, I so your point here is that she is quite unlikable. She, and know, I think, you know, we were hard on Nicole Krauss about this, but Flaubert intentionally sets out to make her extremely difficult to like. She's yes. quite horrible to her children. You know, she child, she, child her mm-hmm. Berta. She sort of pushes her away at one point, saying something very nasty, get away from me. And she smacks her head against the bureau and then she lies to Charles about it. I mean, she has not an ounce of, well, actually, she does at one moment have an ounce of maternal sympathy when she walks over to the carpenter's wife. I mean, to think that people criticize mothers today 
Sunday for spending no time with your children. <laughs> so, so much for those first three months, just send her to the carpenter's wife. Well, and to the wet nurse. Right? To the wet yeah. nurse, right? Which exactly. Was a common practice. A common yeah. practice. And nonetheless, she seems to spend no time. And Charles is forever kind of, you know, getting between the, ch- oh, you know, mama needs her rest. Mama needs to go upstairs and poison herself. <laughs> so leave her alone. <laughs> the point being that Flaubert makes her very difficult to like. And you, you are. I think also, though, it's worth pointing out that Tolstoy is just painting on such a different canvas. I mean, mm-hmm. he gives you this sense of this, you know, the sweeping Russian steps, this people in the grips of turmoil, and there are these huge social questions, whereas everything in Flaubert's France seems like tiny and petty. It's just a a really different lens on the world. It's like making everyone larger than life and making them really, really small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a book that's essential tone is ironic, which is, you know, not the essential tone of, of Anna Karenina. It's ironic and comic at times and grotesque at times. And right. that actually brings me to the really to the doctor, still fundamentally, I find sort of shocking and disturbing, you know, kind of, I mean, very well told, but kind of uh, long. So say what episode. happens. So, so, okay. So, you know, there is this pharmacist in town who is very self-important and vainglorious and prides himself on being a sort of modern man and a secular, you know, Republican and- Monsieur Homais. Monsieur Homais, but in fact is full of, you know, sort of received wisdom and ambition, sort of venal ambition. So anyway, he hears about some new operation that can supposedly cure a club foot. And there's some poor older man who they refer to as the stable boy in town who has a club foot who's been getting along, you know, fine over the years. But he decides to convince him that actually he needs this operation to cure his grotesque deformity. And Emma gets involved in this because she thinks Charles can do it. And this will finally elevate his status and, you know, make him worthy, perhaps, of being her husband. And so she, although he doesn't particularly want to do it, not being particularly ambitious himself, prods him and prods him until he does it. They do it. It turns out to be, you know, a disaster. Gangrene sets in. The poor man has to have his leg amputated. And in the meantime, everyone is entirely concerned with their own, how this affects their own social status and not with the plight of this poor guy who is, you know... Screaming and writhing behind them. I mean, it's not right. as if he's, in, you know, been shipped to the hospital by medevac or anything. He's right. right in the room as they're playing games and cards. And, and I will and say that, you know, Flaubert's father, who was a surgeon and the head of the hospital in Rouen, and, you know, Flaubert grew up in the hospital in the sort of residential ward. And he and his sister, who he was very close to, used to climb up on the wall and, and, and spy on their father, you know, dissecting corpses on the other side till the father would shoo them away. Anyway, the father then died of gangrene from an mm-hmm. abscess on his leg and apparently hideously and painfully. And um, so I assume he was drawing partly on that experience. First of all, it seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, you're sort of leading along the sort of intimate relationships and then suddenly comes this incident from nowhere. So I think, you know, in the structure of the novel, it serves to portend the end. It serves to show you that Emma's actions are going to have horrible consequences, that she, you know, the little things she tries to do and influence can are actually going to be quite destructive. So it gives you a sense of what's to come and kind of death and gangrene. And second, I think it's, it's a way of expanding the palette, as you talked about it, Emily, in talking about the fact that the bourgeoisie, it's not when they just aspire to commercialism or to sort of cliched romance, but even when they are thinking of themselves as noble helpers, as a sort of, you know, 
colonial patrician as we're going to help the other classes, this is when they're at their ugliest. He does not even give them that. I mean, the idea of progress and kind of helpfulness and bringing up the lower classes are all kind of tied together. And it turns out to be the most gruesome incident in the and novel. It's also- and then there's this character of the blind man who's oh, yeah. threaded yeah. through, right? Who also plays that role. And and I think this is also an indictment not only of the Bovaries, but also of Omey, because in the end, oh, yeah. he gets the blind man sent to jail and then condemned to a life in an asylum. Because it's, it's all sense- his vanity again and ambition, because he's yes. claimed that he has some cure for blindness, you know, that doesn't work on this man. And so then he's embarrassed by his presence. He's a sort of blind beggar who, you know, goes around town. So basically, yeah, hounds the poor man. I agree with you. It is that kind of social commentary. But it's also this irony that is a kind of older kind of irony, which is basically like, in a way, is kind of religious, although, you know, Bovary, I mean, Flaubert himself was certainly not. And But it's this idea of sort of vanitas, you know, that we're all sort of on our way to the grave and these kind of mm. interventions. Know, yeah. And, and, and the sort of vanity about even about beauty and our and so on is, you know, that there's this kind of flip side of it, which is that, you know, we're all going to decay, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, of course, her, you know, she's this beautiful woman and and kind of described fetishistically throughout as a beautiful woman. And then she dies this, you know, hideous death with sort of black bile pouring out of her mouth because she's taken arsenic. And so this gangrene episode is almost that kind of, you know, look at this grotesquerie, whatever you aspire to kind of, you know, there's this dark other reality that that is kind of the body, the human body and what it becomes. You know, you just answered a mystery for me because some of what I wrote down is she is described as beautiful, but there are these odd animalistic interludes. Like when he, when Charles first sees her, she's pricking her finger. She's like not very good at these household <laughs> duties, such as being a seamstress. Warning! Don't <laughs> warning. Marry. The woman who cannot sew. <laughs> and, and Not she, in the 19th century. It's a really bad choice. And in fact, it might still be if you ever want a button. Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre can sew. So she pricks her fingers and then he describes her as sucking her fingers. And then there's another moment when they share a drink together. It, it must be, is that with one of her lovers? Maybe it's, I can't remember who she shares a drink with. No, it's with Charles, I think. And she's licking the bottom of her class with little stabs of her tongue, hmm. which is very... Like a cat. Like a cat. Exactly. Hmm. It was It was kind of, it was not, it was not the sort of beautiful romanticized Emma. You didn't find that erotic, Hannah? You know, no. Also, the way she's described is very fetishistic and it's focused on, you know, and this is how the men in her life see her, I guess. But, you know, the focus is on things like her feet and their little boots and her, you know, eyelashes and her little fingernails. It's very... Diminutive. Yes, diminutive and also just little parts of her, which in a way is sort of, you know, we never see her whole in a way and she doesn't see herself whole, right? Right. Yes, her hair, her two bands of hair. Right, you always see pieces of her. You know, it brings up the question of whether Flaubert's descriptions and treatment of Emma Bovary is sexist or egalitarian. I mean, egalitarian in the sense that she is subject to the same aspirations and tragedies as everybody of her class and sexist in the sense that she suffers the worst for them. Also egalitarian in the sense that he does definitely portray her as a victim of limited circumstance. I mean, there are things that she can and can't do as a woman. There's a point at the end when she has her second affair when she smokes. I mean, when Flaubert is drawing the line clearly of what's acceptable for a woman to do and she's stepping over those Mm -hmm. lines and that is really when she is going downhill. Now, do you want to describe, because you were alluding the to the scene, scene, it is a great scene. It's like... Yeah, please. We yeah. need to unpack this one. If you I see still this van, you know, that, by it. you know that bumper sticker they used to have on surfer vans that said, like, if you see this van rockin', don't come a knockin'? <laughs> <laughs> to say this was kind of the 19th century version of that. But describe, describe it. I yeah. kept thinking of the, the scene in Risky Business on the train. <laughs> 
basically um, this is all sort of set it up and then um where where she has yeah. found again this man Leon who was her kind of love interest before and now they're finally going to consummate their and she's resisted you know she's resisted but because we've already seen her have one affair the narrative is written for us when she resists Rodolfo it it has an edge of a you know what's it called in Julian Assange land uh, sex by surprise sex by surprise uh-huh. <laughs> she's kind of a little there's still an edge of genuine horror that she's going to throw herself at Rodolfo her first lover but in the second case of Leon when she re-encounters him at the opera you feel like it's inevitable it's going to happen so so her resistance is, is theater, essentially. And she's in the manner of a romantic heroine sort of written this great note to Leon, you know, declaring that she is not, in fact, going to have this affair with him. Although we don't know what the note says, but presumably it says, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, we shall forever be fated to be apart or whatever. Then they, they get somebody to call a coach for them. They go in the coach, and this is what it says of the coachman. He could not understand what mania for locomotion <laughs> was compelling these individuals to refuse to stop because essentially they just have him drive around and around, which is a fairly small town. It's not like driving around and around in New York. I think people probably noticed that they were driving around and around. And then it has this fantastic, fantastic paragraph. Once at midday out in the countryside, when the sun was beating down most fiercely against the old silver-plated lamps, a bare hand passed under the little blinds of yellow canvas and threw out some torn scraps of paper. This was her letter, presumably, which scattered in the wind and alighted in a distance like white butterflies on a field of red clover all in bloom. I really cannot, I mean, that's so sensual and vivid, the image of that carriage driving around yes. and around in a mania for locomotion. Because it basically describes the route that it takes, which is this, you know, zigzagging, repetitive route throughout the small town and, you know, thereby implying that sex is occurring within without actually saying that. Although at one point it does describe it and that's why I said that earlier as, you know, <laughs> rocking like a ship on the ocean or something like that. Well, and then and it, it has this about like a ship. Oh, well, this has this like in a tomb. Yes, it's that was the great like. phrase. That was, I thought, just incredible delicacy uh, yeah, of Flaubert's part. Yes, it's right before the paragraph that I read. It said, you know, a carriage with drawn blinds that kept appearing and reappearing, sealed tighter than a tomb and tossed about like a ship at sea. So it's really funny, for one thing, right? But it's also awful. I mean, the tomb is going to reappear the way the knife reappears. And so these are these fairly, you know, dark metaphors that come up again and funny moments, but then also pretend. Then can I just read the end of this? Because I just love this moment in the novel. Then towards six o'clock, the carriage stopped in a lane in the Beauvoisin district and a woman stepped down from it and walked away. Her veil lowered without turning her head. Fabulous. Just like what's in that moment? Shame, exhilaration, who knows? You know, she's now a different woman. She's sort of a woman in mourning of her old self or something. That's right. And his voice, it's described from the perspective of the carriage driver, who's like a cab driver, who basically (laughs) hears- what the hell? (laughs) Kind of hoarse, angry voice periodically when he stops saying, go on, go on. (laughs) Well, and not to mention he's also betrayed. He gets really tired from all the driving and Flaubert says he's demoralized and almost weeping from thirst, fatigue, and gloom. (laughs) And so we have the social commentary here again. These adulterers are really ruining the lives of everyone around them. And his horse. Now, do we have no sympathy? sweating nag. Rudolfo, who's her first lover, is clearly a cad, right? He sets out, he views her as prey, he sets out to conquer her. You know, there's the great thing that happens after they have sex the first time where he, with his knife and his teeth, which is exactly what she complained about with Charles, (laughs) while smoking a cigar, is fixing the bridle of his horse's 
quite it's, it's which quite had crude, broken. which had broken, and it's quite you know crude, funny metaphor, and does remind you of the moment that she hated Charles because he had a penknife. So it is the penknife is the kind of symbol of crudeness. But Leon, you know, isn't he kind of romantic student type? Anybody, you know, what yeah, do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, especially initially, I think he's certainly more sympathetic than Rodolfo. He, um, yeah, is more sensitive, more does seem kind of quite genuinely smitten with her. He's younger. He's not a sort of you know yeah full time kind of user of women. And yet in the end, Rodolphe's rejection of her is just, you know, prefigures Léon's. And because you've kind of expected more from Léon because he was so smitten, it makes him seem also like a total cad by the end, I think. Flaubert described their conversations as cliched, that that was the problem in there, you know, that initially they seemed to have this great mind meld in the beginning of the novel when they're talking about they both love to read, but that in fact, the language they were speaking in was language that was not from the heart, but language that they had sort of picked up here and there from the ether and from So novels. I have a question for you. Does this novel make you think that these people truly are just vapid to their core? They have not a redeeming thought about them or that... Of course, that can't be the case. The Quaker in me rejects it. There yeah. Has to be some yeah. Like, that is the fundamental question. question. That's the fundamental question about this novel is are they, you know, what what is the combination of character flaw and circumstance that go into this? Is this about her? You know, could you insert here a noble character like Jane Eyre or somebody who does have a kind of moral center and core? <laughs> Would they be totally out of place or? I don't know about nobility in that way or even character in that way, but I think there is certainly a tenderness for a kind of of the benighted human condition. I mean, it, and it comes through in passages like the one we read about the inability to express the depth of our emotions, because in a way, here she is, she's a person of some sensitivity, you know, not great intelligence, maybe, but some sort of idealism and sensitivity, who is kind of buffeted about by her own emotions and desires, which have been kind of ginned up artificially by this kind of, you know, subgrade literature and kind of, you know, consumer driven desire that you know has been implanted in her by the culture she lives in. I mean, I think there's um a feeling that she is a person of some somewhat more you know, exalted emotions than some people around her and that he feels for her in that way, but that she sort of has nothing, she has no outlet for them. She has no way to live them out or express them that won't, you know, be deeply harmful to her and everyone around everyone her. Everyone around now, her. Now, it's funny, in the, you know, I, as I was trying to answer this question for myself, I was thinking, how would we describe Emma Bovary in the modern psychological age? Like, <laughs> would she, you know, she's narcissistic. She's, what, self-involved. She's mm-hmm. romantic. She's, you know, she's a malcontent. Like, would we describe her as utterly hopeless? Like, would she be so completely trapped? Because we are, we live in an age in which people are constantly striving to self-improve and dissatisfied, right? That's not an uncommon, that's not uncommon to the right. human condition. Right. Sort of the opposite of Emma as someone who's settled and satisfied, and that's certainly not who we are today. And right. So it's hard, and it's sort know. of the capitalist condition, too, to right. you know, be permanently, I mean, to, to have, you know, live <laughs> among plenty of people who are permanently dissatisfied because there are so many people, you know, around you and so much temptation around you that, you know, is, is beyond what you might have. So, yeah. I think that you have to fundamentally reimagine her because divorce changes the whole picture, right? I mean, my vision of someone like her now is that she just turns into a trophy wife and does a lot 
lot of yoga and never eats anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and she is on Real Housewives. Is on right. Real Housewives. I mean, seriously, that's who right. she yeah. would be. And that's I think that's right. Yeah. She would be the pretty one. And on she would start um, like a beauty care product line, you know, that would be like something she would feel really. La Bovary. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. she would still be discontent. But the notion that she would be so constrained, we would no that longer would have away. that charitable reading in the same way. We'd have right. to come up with a different one. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, right. Let's... She can be a tragic figure in a way that she couldn't be a tragic figure today. I suppose exactly. that's right. Although I also think, Margaret, although I think your charitable reading that you just gave is there, that there's a whole other interpretation of the mm-hmm. book. I mean, at least one. But one that struck me, and now I'm going to move us perhaps prematurely to the ending. No, that's but exactly where I'd like to go. Yes. Okay, good. I love the last 30 to 50 pages of this book. Suddenly I was like turning the pages as fast as I could. And then mm. I decided that maybe the whole point was to make her someone who's death you could watch really intimately and totally savor. <laughs> well, see, this is where I thought that the whole reading of Flaubert is kind of without moral judgment is a kind of cliched reading of this novel because, in fact, she suffers terribly. There are terrible consequences for her behavior in this novel, yeah, much as there mind? is in many 19th century novels. You know, she suffered a terrible death. She ruined the life of her daughter. You know, she brought a complete misery upon her husband. I this was not a woman with moral failings. Poor daughter. Would, yes. But I did not care. Like, I felt like I watched kind of the way that you watch a horror movie that is grisly and yet cliched. I just was really into this whole arsenic poisoning and her demise. And I, I was like, I was lapping. Usually I, I get so empathetic for characters that if anything bad happens to them, it's very worrisome and I, it's upsetting. But here I was just really, I went for every moment of her financial collapse, her Well, it does. There is this way in which it gets supercharged there at the end. I know what you mean. She's running around town. I mean, partly she's becoming in a strange sort of way a more active person. So she's, you know, she's running around town. She's going to Rodolfo and, and demanding money from him. So there's this kind of frenzied energy that takes over in the final pages that, yeah, does give a kind of forward momentum. And yeah, I mean, the, the description of the death is this very sort of clinical and sort of fascinating evocation of what it is apparently like to die from arsenic. Emily, when they had that moment where, you know, poor Bertha yet again asks for her mother and they tell her mom. Yeah, is Bertha, okay. Yeah, yeah. Plus, what like, about Bertha Charles? ends up in a workhouse. What it's about, awful. I know. What about Charles? You didn't feel anything I didn't feel sorry for him. He just seemed like a big fool to me. Now, Flaubert wanted you to be crying big time there, he said later. And he himself, in writing that sequence, kept having to stop to throw up because he was so identified with Emma that he... So interesting, since the last line of the novel is like, Monsieur Homme won the Prix d'Honneur or whatever he won, you know, some Well, that's the indictment. That's Flaubert sticking his knife into the heart of the bourgeoisie again. Right. right. So would we recommend this as a holiday reading now that it's the new year or do we oh, feel definitely. that it's just too Particularly depressing? if you're having some kind of bitter family moment and you need to read about a good arsenic. <laughs> no, I mean, it's thing. a fantastically well-written book and you see, I mean, I, and I think this is a very kind of vigorous and wonderful translation. Well, thank you both for joining me. That was really enlightening and I'm hoping for more new translations of old college favorites that yeah. we can revisit these excellent classics. And thank you both and happy new year to everyone. Bye. 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 